much when it doesn't. Um, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll look at this uh, lesson on study, how to, how to study God's Word and prepare to, to teach. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we bow before you now. We thank you for your love for us and your provision for us in so many ways. And God, we just ask that this morning as we begin this holy week that we would um, look to you, our King, and rejoice at your future coming, the fact that you have saved us and you, have prepared, you are preparing us for your second coming. We look forward to it and we uh, pray it comes even today. We love you and praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, looking at and, uh, the approach to study here, and we've got some more outlines coming if you're short on an outline. Um, this is uh, one of the more. This is probably the more technical of the of the lectures that we'll have in this series. Uh, anybody need another outline? Yeah, we got some hands going up here. Uh, hopefully, when we finish, we'll have a good grasp on an initial grasp on uh, the uh, the a, a method, a solid uh, method for preparing to teach or preach a text. But you can use this also just in your personal. Study as you study through the scriptures. Now the first point looks a little, I know it looks a little, uh, you know, basic. But turn to the text we'll use this morning in the sermon in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I'll show you why this is important. Why it's important that we select a good text to teach from or preach from. A lot of times uh, we're tempted, especially in our day and in our um, in our uh, world, kind of, um, we're tempted to make the mistake of cutting the text away from its natural context. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and a lot of times we make mistakes like, like the following. We'll preach a sermon, and the sermon will be on um, chapter 8, verse 4 and 5. The whole sermon will be on chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And that's the sermon text. What, what, what's the problem with the sermon text like that? Besides, we've got to preach about old people. Yes. If you stay in those two verses, you're going to miss the point of what those verses are really teaching. And you're going to tend to teach a, your message, not God's message. Why? Because if we look at actually at this text, all of chapter 8 is, is at least, at least all of chapter 8 should make the sermon. This is a narrative text. And in a narrative text, and this run, you run into it in the Old Testament, and you run into it in the Gospels, if you cut little verses out of the narrative text, then it's a pretext. It's not in context. And you will make your own sermon, not God's sermon. And so it's just important that especially sometimes in the Old Testament, listen, the story of David and Goliath, that's really a three-chapter sermon. If you're going to preach God's message to his people... You've got to preach three chapters. Why? Because God wrote that story through the hand of, 
the writer of Samuel, he wrote that story so that we can grasp a big picture of how God delivers his people from their enemies. And if we miss that, then we do what's called atomize, A-T-O-M-I-Z-E, atomize the text. We break it apart to its smallest function, and then we teach a whole lesson on something that is a, either a minor point. It happens in the Gospels all the time. Turn over to Matthew. We'll show you a New Testament example of what can happen when you're in the Gospels. Turn over to Matthew, um, and let's just look. You could really do it in a lot of places. Let's just look at Matthew chapter 10. Okay. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Sermon text. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus says, I came to bring a sword and not peace. I preach a, a sermon on that text. What's the problem? It's not in its context, so therefore it looks like Jesus is uh, warmongering looking to start a bunch of fights, when actually, when we look at it, it's not that at all, is it? If we continue in that, at least in that paragraph, at least in that paragraph, 34 through 39, let's look at what it really says. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Man, we're getting into deep water, aren't we? And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those in his, of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In verse 38 and 39, we find the point of Jesus' teaching. That to follow Jesus, you must die. Die to yourself. Die to your family relationships die to uh, the societal norm around you. You have to die daily to that. And take up your cross and follow Christ, willingly laying down your life so that you will have a life in Him. That's the point. But if we just look at verse 34 and teach it out of its context, we can make Jesus look like a, a lunatic fringe leader who was coming to bring a sword of war. Well, it contradicts his later teaching, his later sayings, doesn't it? Because when Pilate questions him, what does he say? If my, if my followers had wanted, if I'd wanted to set up my kingdom on the earth, my followers would have taken up swords and we would have a kingdom on the earth. My kingdom is not of this earth, it's of another, another place. And so you, you see, you can contradict Jesus against himself if you take verses out of their context. My encouragement to you as a young a teacher, a young student, is teach more, not less. Teach more text, not less text. Spurgeon used to say it like this. Let a man who begins to preach, preach the book of Genesis. Once he has mastered preaching the entire book of Genesis in one sermon, then let him find a section. Once he's found a section, let him preach that section. Once he's preached that section well, then let him find a chapter. Once he's found a chapter, let him find a section of the chapter. And then once he's found a chapter, it may be possible that he can preach a verse and keep it in his context. But if you make the mistake of trying to emulate many of your 
heroes in the teaching and preaching profession, you'll make a lot of mistakes. They've been at it for a long time. And they're, they're, they're masters at uh, finding the point and teaching the text. So I could actually say, to me, you could preach that Matthew 10 passage much better if you back up and get the entire chapter. Again, we're looking at an entire chapter. Why? Because he's, t- he's, he's telling his apostles, he's called his apostles, and then he's sending them out to teach, and he's explaining to them the persecution they will face when they teach the gospel. And now I can grab the whole context. He sends them out to teach, and he, he warns them of the coming persecution due to their teaching. So take your time, pray about, and really look for a text to teach. When you're selecting the text, make sure you don't go too far. You don't want to bleed over into another story, but you also don't want to take too little of a text so that you're not able to effectively teach. And be careful not to lean too heavy on your chapter divisions and your, your subtitles in your Bible. Um, remember, all chapter divisions were added. All verse divisions were added. They were not in the originals. And sometimes, especially in Paul's letters, his epistles, they play havoc, these divisions. You know, they, they actually cut his flow of thought, and you need to be teaching two, you know, parts of two chapters. So, then after you've read the text, you've framed it in its entirety, uh, you've read through it at least five times. Whenever I started teaching the book of Ephesians, uh, before I ever made any notes about anything in the book of Ephesians, I read the entire letter five times in one sitting. I did that. I did that for a month. Every week I read the book five times in one sitting. And then once that was accomplished, then I began to go back and look at the chapters, the divisions, the outline, and begin to break down the text. Why, why would you read something over and over like that? What, am I, what are you gaining? Yeah, you're, you're, in a book like Ephesians, you're almost going to memorize it. You're going to at least have a good... The concepts that he's presenting. That's exactly right. You're gaining that. What, what do you really remember from what we talk about selecting a text? What are we trying to do? We're trying to gain the context. How do you get the context if you haven't even read the letter? Have you gained the context of a verse in Matthew if you don't know Matthew's point? <laughs> yeah, read the notes. Those are inspired, yes. Okay, so begin your note-taking process. After you've read and you've, you've found uh, the, the text that you're going to teach, then you begin, and this is point D under v- number one point, begin to take notes. Understand the genre of literature you're dealing with. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're dealing, with lit- we're dealing with a narrative, historical passage, a historical narrative, and a historical context. So we're going to look for, the, for Samuel, uh, and I'll give you some hints um, on some good aids that can help you with this. But on, on the book of Samuel, remember, we need to look at Ruth. We need to look at Judges. We need to understand a little bit about 1 and 2 Kings. We, there's, a, there's a big context. All those books are, are playing into our understanding of our text. How can we do that? You got somebody asks you to teach for them, you got a week. How do we get ready for that? 
Well, there's some great resources. Let me give you one. Um, there's a handbook. There's a handbook um, of the Bible. Um, the handbook of the Bible. And it's, I should have brought it. It's on my shelf. It, John MacArthur compiled it or, and, and um, published it some years ago. And um, it's a good resource. You want those kind of resources, like a handbook of the Bible or um, a good Old Testament survey uh, by uh, Lasord and Hubbard and Bush. They write a good Old Testament survey um, that will give you an overview of a book in a few pages. And so you read that and you, you gain the context of what, who's writing, when are they writing, what's going on in the culture around them. You just kind of grab the historical context of what you're doing. Okay? And then, you know, uh, that also will give you all the um, uh, lead on, again, a lead on what's going on and setting it and, and preparing you. Okay? Okay. Second point, in a good system of study, after we've found an appropriate text, then we want to do our, what's known as exegetical, or our, our breakdown of the passage itself within its original context. Now, um, I wrote these notes, and, and I wrote them in terms of, of a preacher, but you can do this. Listen, translate the passage from the original language if at all possible. So, if you know Greek or Hebrew, you can break down that passage in its original context. How many people know Greek and Hebrew in here? Okay, so what, what can we do though? How can we remedy that? You don't know Greek or Hebrew. How many of you have at least three translations in the English in your house or that you can get hold of? At least three translations in English. You get? Yeah, NIV, ESV translations. Living Bible, even a living Bible. You got three translations? You got a good jump on the original language. Every one of those translations was taken from the original and put into English. Most of them, if you look at like the ESV, 45 scholars worked on the Old Testament. 45 scholars worked on the New Testament. These men are the most world-renowned linguists in their fields. And they're selected. They sit on a board and they look word by word. At the, original, or, or at the original languages in the manuscripts that are collected. There's a whole library of manuscripts, by the way, of the Bible. It's all computerized now. It's housed in Germany, but it's all on computer. And these guys looked at those texts, and they sat around and argued, probably drank a lot of coffee, ate a lot of donuts, arguing about every word that went into the translation. Every word. So let me ask you this. How will you ever outdo one of them? Just one of them, much less 45 of them. In coming to what God's Word really says in a specific place in a text. I'm not sure what you're referring to. The ESV. Yeah. 
Well, I don't know if that any of those in the ESV, but let me, let me kind of rate translations for you really quickly and tell you how I move in my study. The first that, believe it or not, I don't, I don't teach from it, but the first text to consider, in my mind, in the English, is the NASB. Aaron's smiling. That's the first text for you to take and look. It's in ASB. Why? Because it is wor- it's, they, the way they translated the text was word by word. And they, if you notice, it's rough. When you read it, a lot of times, it's rough because they don't even reorder the words. They just lay them down for you on the page, okay? It's good. They don't do any interpretation. They just simply put the word down on the page. All right? That's the NASB. Then I, then I move to the ESV New King James. Why? Because these two are, uh, are, are not dynamic translations. They're, they are, uh, they're akin to this NASB. What they do is reorder the word for you. So they put it in good English. NASB doesn't always use good English. It makes it hard to read. It definitely makes it hard when you're reading publicly. Because it just doesn't sound good, okay? But the ESV and New King James, I stay away from the King James, okay? But King James is a great translation. It's a great translation. I just stay away from it. Um, the language is it's kind of difficult. I don't, I don't know why you would put another language in between you and the text. Uh, like the old English is another language. Um, then I move to the NIV. The NIV is a, what's known as a dynamic text. Their intention is to give you the translation of the word with interpretation. The NIV will interpret in, in places where there's controversy. The NIV will settle the debate for you. The NASB settles no debates. They put the word in there and then you've got to go do the study and figure out what you believe about what's being said there. The NIV settles some of those debates for you. That doesn't make it wrong. It's a really good Bible. I love it. But it's not as word literal as the NASB, word for word. Okay, it moves further down the chain. And lastly, I consult the Amplified and Living Bibles. Why? Because they're paraphrases. And that, again, I would never teach from them, but they give you sometimes the perspective you need when you're looking. So I've looked at, by the time I do this step in the process, I've looked at the originals. And I don't know the original fluently. So then I go look at six or seven translations of the English text. Yes. Yes. It is. The Holman Standard. Yes. You know, the biggest debate they had when they were putting it together, uh, one of our professors at New Orleans was on the council that did that, and one of the biggest debates they had was over the word baptizo. It's a, it's a Baptist translation. And they, they opted to just go with, the, with, with the baptism, which is just it's, it's not a, any kind of... Uh, clue as to where their doctrine is and they they stuck with baptism what was the argument the argument was there were those who wanted to say immerse 
because that, in their opinion, that's the meaning of the word. And he was immersed into the water. And he was immersed into the water and brought forth. And so, uh, and so there was a big brouhaha over that, big excitement and debate. And they sided on the side of history uh, rather than translation. I'm not familiar. Oh, uh, Nat, uh, probably an evangelism Bible. Is it? There was a. Any time we're dealing with it, let me tell you what, uh, sometimes I get really bothered because I'll hear, and, um, I'll hear a lot of people um, bash a translation. We need to be very careful when we do that. Very careful. There are bad translations, okay? There are better translations better than others. But for the most part, when you're dealing with a, a standard Bible like an ESV, an NIV, a New American Standard, a New King James, you're dealing with good scholarly work. You're dealing with something that is very reliable, very reliable. And the differences between the NIV and ESV are going to be minimal, very minimal. And they're not going to change significant doctrines, okay? Um, and so, and even in the paraphrases, again, let's don't be afraid of the paraphrases. But you just need to hold them till the end because they're going to start interpreting for you. Yeah, you hear a lot of stuff like that. We just need to be very careful with that, uh, that kind of talk. Again, I wouldn't teach from the Living Bible. I wouldn't teach from the Amplified Bible. But they're, they're, they're okay once you've looked and read the other translations and come to some stuff to look at to see, hey, let's get their, uh, their opinion here. Oh, yeah. Let's see. And, and let me, uh, as we're moving through here, look what uh, the next step here is to gather more specific context information, such as the reason the text was originally written. What is the purpose or theme of the text? Like in that Matthew 10 example, I, I, the theme and purpose of the text is verses 38 and 39. Everything he says above that is leading to him saying, lay down your life, die to yourself. You can't follow me and hold on to your family. Okay? You, have to, you have to die to those things. So find that, but find that through your study. And there'll be, um, sometimes it'll jump off the page at you, sometimes it's more difficult. Now, then we want to make an outline. This is a provisional outline, and I... I um, re highly recommend that now you begin to break it down based on the language. Um, and for you, just taking your English text and doing the old-fashioned diagramming, block diagramming of sentences, clauses, uh, adjectives, adverbs, all the things your English teacher taught you, they help you in studying God's Word. Do you, do you know what uh, happens when you take Greek and you get remediated in the seminary? You know what they send you to? Not baby Greek. They generally send you to an English class. You know why? Because most of us can't diagram an English sentence. If I had us come up one at a time and say, 
Here's your sentence. Now diagram it for us on the board. Tell us what's the subject, what's the verb, what's the adverb, what's the adjective. You'd start panicking. People would get up and go to the bathroom. They'd skip their turn. Well, I mean, let's be honest. Now, if you don't know your language very well, how are you going to learn someone else's language? Right, Ann? Am I preaching your... Ann's giving the thumbs up. You didn't think it would really matter that you knew what a participle was until you preach an entire sermon based on the participle and your professor says you missed the subject. You didn't get it. That was all modifier. What you're talking about is a good thing, but that's not the point for Paul when he was writing. So you just, you just really want to think here. Think with me. Uh, you can even find tools to help you with that. There, there are plenty of tools out there um, that help you. Try to stay away from the outline Bibles. Again, outline Bibles begin to interpret for you. So just try to stay away from those in your study. Try to stay away from those in your study. Stay with the translations. Study through them. Make your own outline. It may not be a great outline. It's okay. Um, and then, after we've written our outline, we find a theme. We want to ca ca capture the idea of Jesus in Matthew 10, 34 through 39, in one sentence. In one, hopefully, memorable sentence. But at this point, it may not be all that memorable. Okay? Third step in our process of study is that we try to uh, put the text in its relationship with the rest of Scripture. So, there are key words in every text that we want to look at and then look at how they're used throughout the rest of the book that we're studying and then also throughout the Bible. Um, one that we might look at here in the text in Matthew chapter 10 um, is when Jesus says, uh, follow me. Whenever Jesus says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, I would probably want to know, what does Jesus mean by follow me? I don't want to know, how does Jesus use that? And how do the gospel writers use that? It's in all the gospels, by the way. There's always, in every gospel, there's a command to follow Jesus. And I would want to search through the first Matthew and then Mark, Luke, and John and see how does Jesus use this in other places? What is he referring to when he says, follow me? Is he talking about physically getting up and walking after him? In some of the texts he is. Or is he talking about, like in our text, spiritually mentally, emotionally, and physically following him. In other words, our whole life. Notice that he said in the context in, uh, in losing our life. So he grabs all of us and says, that's what's to follow me. All of you is to follow me. Okay? So we want to look at key themes, I mean key um, words and phrases then search them out through, starting in Matthew. I look at how does Matthew look at that phrase? How does he use it in his writing? And then the other gospel writers. Okay? As you're doing this, you want to make notes. You want to write down, jot down quickly, notes on Old Testament text, New Testament text that use your word. If you're in, the, in a text that uses the word glory, and you, you're going to want to look up what glory means, and you're going to see what it means in other places in the Scripture. And you're going to have to keep those notes. If you don't, you won't remember it. 
you'll read it, and by the time you come back to prepare your preaching outline, you'll say, well, there was somewhere over in Isaiah that he talked about glory. But Isaiah is a rather large book for you on Saturday night to be trying to figure out when you're going to teach on Sunday where exactly that reference was you were looking for. So in this process, it's imperative that you keep a notebook in handy and pen in hand and write down, write down at least the references and a little note about what the reference is. Okay? But we're tracing these key words, tracing these key phrases in their use throughout the Scriptures. Okay? And now we want to kind of get, try to get behind the text and see how would the people of, of, of Jesus' day, of Matthew's day, when he wrote this, when they read this aloud, how would the audience have received this? How would they have understood what's being taught? When you look at uh, his parables, often Jesus is teaching parables on farming. And there's a reason. Why did he do that? Yeah, the people were farmers, right? And so you, 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 you want to do your best to understand how would they have understood sowing seed? How would they have understood uh, as fishermen throwing bread on water? What, what would have been the reason behind throwing bread out on, casting bread out on the water? What were they trying to accomplish with that technique? And when they're drawing a net in, and he's talking about being fishers of men, he's comparing it to drawing nets in with, that are full and overflowing with fish, what, how, does, how, does, how did they receive this teaching? What was it in their mindset? Okay, And we all, I think, have had experience of that where we're using a phrase and someone's receiving that phrase differently than we do. But we... We try to grab, grab the original audience's idea, what they were thinking, as best we can, and then make any changes to that previous outline you've done on the, on the outline, any changes that you've run into. So maybe something has now changed in your mind. Don't be afraid to change something in your study. All right, and then we move to now's when in our study. We've done all this on our own. Now we move to what others have said. Commentaries, references of what others have said. Let's say I'm going to teach this text on Matthew 10, 34 through 39. And my first step in the process is to read four sermons on Matthew 10, 34 through 39. What's likely to happen? Yes. All the work they did overwhelms any work you do, and in their sermon becomes your sermon. Your sermon becomes their sermon. You, you, you will not benefit as much, and your audience will not benefit as much if you don't wrestle with the text yourself. Now, let me, let me tell you this. Um, I, I remember, um, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure where I heard this. It was either on tape Aaron might remember, it was either on tape where the, the Russian pastor was preaching using John MacArthur's uh, commentary. He was basically reproducing that. He was verbally just preaching it. And, uh, and some people were upset with the, with the pastor for what he was doing. And MacArthur was making one of his trips to Russia. And so they, they have the man who wrote the commentary sitting there, and their pastor's been preaching, leaning heavily on MacArthur's resources. And they're they confront the pastor, and MacArthur defended the man. Okay? 
Now, this is why he defended him. Because this man had never been trained. He, he knew nothing about original languages. And the only resource he had was the Bible and this commentary that had been given to him on what he was teaching from MacArthur. That's all he had was those two resources. He had one translation and he had one commentary. And that's all he had. And he wasn't copywriting. He wasn't getting up and laying the commentary out and reading the commentary. He was working as best he could, but when he hit the wall and he couldn't get any more, he turned to the commentary for help. And so he often quoted MacArthur. The problem was he was not smart and adept at doing this, so he was quoting MacArthur. He was saying, John MacArthur says this, and John MacArthur says that, and John MacArthur. And the people got tired of hearing John MacArthur say now, what he didn't realize is that here in America, preachers don't do that. They just go get the sermon off the internet and don't quote anybody. And that way it looks like their sermon. Now, this happens a lot. It happens so much, it's so prevalent in our society that people have even turned them in in seminary. Other people's sermons turned in in seminary. Preached them in preaching classes. Okay, so if they'll do it in the seminary class <laughs> where the professor is grading them, you know, what are they doing at home where nobody's grading them and most of their people are not looking on the internet at sermons? Well, we know what's happening. So, but, but before you jump too heavily on them, it happens a lot of times, not so blatantly, it happens because they go too early in the process to somebody else a commentary, a trusted preacher, and they read it. It gets in their mind. It's so good. Sometimes you'll read something John Piper's written or you'll read something Jonathan Edwards wrote about a verse, and it just is so much better than anything you could ever imagine saying. And it just becomes your work. I mean, that's it. I, I, I'm going to say that. That's good, okay? And sometimes that's going to happen. But just quote them. Be, be like the dumb Russian guy and just keep quoting them. And, and, and be honest about it, okay? But you do want to wait as long as you can in the process to start looking at other resources. Commentaries, resources, um, start to enter in here, reading through. Read as much as you can. Don't just try not to just read one guy, one person. Again, that helps vary your voice. So you don't want to read one commentary. You want to do your best to read five commentaries. Or, if you've got time, ten commentaries. Okay? You don't want to listen to one preached sermon on the text. Because that's, that's a good tool. You can go to Monergism. You can go to a lot of websites and listen to sermons. Okay? That's a good thing. Right? But if you just listen to one guy's sermon, you're going to tend to repeat everything he says. If you listen to five sermons or ten sermons you're going to do more to broaden your base of understanding of that text, and you're going to be less likely to just copy them. Okay? You can always, it's easy to happen. Again, when you're in a pulpit every weekend, it's, it's easy for this to happen. You, you've been around those preachers, their voice starts sounding like a particular preacher, their, their hand gestures are that guy's gestures, everything they do is that guy. It's a carbon copy. You say, they've been listening to Tim Keller that's all they listen to is Tim Keller. It's obvious. They use his expressions. They start sounding like a Yankee, and they're from down in the south. You say, wait a minute, that's not, that's not how we talk. Where's he getting this from? You know, but it happens. So in a, in a typical uh, week, 
Now, I don't listen just to sermons that I'm going to preach, but I just listen to a lot of good preachers. I, I have about six preachers that I listen to almost every week at some point during the week. Preach on something, not the same text. Because it helps us, all right? We, that's a good thing to do in your study process. If I'm going to teach Matthew 10, 34 through 39, and I'm going to teach it in a Sunday school class, there's nothing wrong with listening to four or five sermons on that from four or five different guys. That's a good thing, okay? Do it late in the process, not at the beginning. And consult commentaries the same way. Broaden your base. Take time after you've studied through this uh, to uh, refer over everything to a biblical theology, a systematic theology, a historical theology as we've already, we've already talked about. And then pray. Pray. Remember at the beginning we said pray about your text. Now we're praying about our study. Pray. Pray early and often. Nobody will teach you the scripture better than God himself. Nobody will teach you the Bible and help you understand and apply it better than God himself. And no matter how many good preachers you listen to or commentaries you read, if you don't have God involved in this process heavily, you, your sermons will not have the power and impact that you're looking for them to have. The Holy Spirit must be involved. Okay? So, yes, go ahead. Right. So you kind of get an idea where they're coming from. Because mm -hmm. I know with me, a lot of times when I'm reading it, something, if I'm not as concerned as I need to be, you may pick up subtleties or you may not. And you may be influenced by those subtleties if you don't know where they're coming from. And of course, the obvious thing you may do is look to see, were they really in the writing show and allegiance to the Word of God? Mm -hmm. or are they focused on their opinion? Right. Right. Absolutely. And those guys do exist. And there's another one he was talking about is from Master's Seminary. And there's also one from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, um, Al Moeller is the president there. And both their New Testament and Old Testament professors have put together uh, preferred resources. And, and I'm president. This, this, and I know we're just talking about opinions. Sure. But like that monarchism cycle. Yes. Yes. Uh, good websites like Monergism, The Gospel Coalition, um, Desiring God, Grace to You. Uh, those are some, uh, Desiring God is obviously John Piper, Grace to You is John MacArthur. Um, uh, you know, Tim Keller's site at Redeemer is becoming more and more usable. I used to not reference his site because he charged for his sermons, but he's dropped a lot of that now. You can get them free. Yes.
Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, and the writer, because John uses light often, doesn't he, to refer to Jesus. John 1, we see it in, uh, in John 9. One of the biggest focuses of John 9 about healing the blind man is, is the, the light that comes in. He's, he sees for the first time this, the light. And so there's this beautiful uh, use of the concept of light to refer to Jesus by John. And what is he really doing with that? And there's a whole theology there. I mean, there's a whole point in theology and Christology there about Jesus being the light. And so, um, yes, exactly um, what we want to be doing. Looking at the uh, context, finding ourselves really focusing in on the the, um, commentaries late in our study. Now, now we want to do an outline for preaching. Um. How do we um, do this? Well, we develop a, an outline of preaching. All the points of your outline need to be, when you're getting ready to teach or preach, need to be complete sentences, complete thoughts, at this point especially. You want to stay away from one-word uh, points. Okay, You want to express a thought. This, this will help you form... Your, the kernel of the idea better and it will help your audience also um, because again we want to send them home with the sense of the text more than we send them home even with our outline your outline should aid them but it shouldn't be what they even remember so much you want them to remember the text okay a lot of times great outlines get I heard uh, Al Mohler talk about this in one of our preaching classes he said, the problem with a lot of sermons is they have great outlines. Everybody kind of looked around like, looking for our New Testament professor. He was in the back. He just taught us about outlines. We're looking back there at him, you know. Dr. Moeller said, really a sermon is more like an act in a play. You want to have act one, movement, act two, movement, act three, movement. You want, you, you're, not, you're, you're teaching the text. You're trying to teach the text. You want the text to be remembered. Not your outline, but the text itself. And so if an outline's helpful in anything, it's helpful in complete sentences. Again, kernels of idea that you're pushing from the text itself. Not uh, so much one word or two things. They Also, one word outlines a lot of times sound like a commentary. If you do, if you do be careful. <laughs> Use that carefully and sparingly. Um, work on your transition statements. Again, when you move from one point to the next point, you want to, at this point in your process, you want to be working on transitions, moving from one to the next smoothly. Again, not abruptly, so that it, it all kind of comes together and is pushing to this main idea. 
All right. And then after you've developed the body of the outline, you want to spend time preparing an introduction, a conclusion. You want to be careful about how you start and careful how you finish. Now that I'm more um, in the way of making sermons, I'm still working at it, by the way. I spend the very beginning of my study time is spent on conclusion. Before I do anything else, I write my conclusion. Why would I do that? Yes. Uh, I know where I want to land the plane. All right. Now it's the process of figuring out how to land it there. And if I landed it in the right place. But I want to know where I'm going to land. Now I go back and worry about the outline. And the last thing I do is put it in an introduction. That's the last part for me is an introduction. Now other people work other ways. I'm not legislating that as the only way to do it. Some guys do better writing it with the outline than go to the introduction then come to the conclusion last. This is just how my mind works is to go to conclusion. Finish it, do it well, and then work on the other parts. <laughs> yes. I, it, it has happened. It has happened. And that's the danger of writing the conclusion first. You really love your conclusion. It's a good conclusion. Man, it's powerful. It's emotionally appealing. It just doesn't match my outline. So now what am I going to do? You know. But uh, you just have to be okay with throwing a good conclusion away every now and then. Hopefully if you've done, notice this is at nearing the end of the process. If you've done good exegetical work, your conclusion shouldn't be way out in left field. You ought, you ought to kind of already know what the text is teaching you. Okay? All right. And then... Um, after developing an outline, you want to spend time with your uh, 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 illustrations, communicating the message to the audience. Be careful with the illustrations. Sometimes the illustrations are like good outlines. Good illustrations get in the way of the text. Everybody goes home, and the one thing you hear over and over through the week is about your illustration. Your illustration was too good. It was too prominent. It distracted instead of pushing them to the text. Illustrations are only good if they push you to the text. If they are an end-all, be-all in themselves, then we have an issue. One of the guys that um, I had to listen to for this project preach, I, one of the th comments I made in my... Uh, it's hard when you're critiquing a guy that's nationally known and, and, and beloved by so many. But I said... One of the most fascinating storytellers I've ever listened to. I mean, he could tell a story and you'd just be on the edge of your seat. The problem was the story typically glorified him, his family, his church. And little, if ever, did I walk away from one of those stories thinking, man, I know Jesus more. I know the text better. They were just really good stories. He told a story about his son sailing around the world. It was phenomenal. It could be made into a daytime movie or something. I mean, but when he got done, that's all I remembered about the sermon was his story about his son sailing around the world. Okay? We just, we just had to be careful. Um, student, after this, you, you prepare a manuscript. And manuscripts, um, 
early in your studying career, you in teaching career, you want to do word for word manuscripts. Aaron still does word for word manuscripts. Very effective. Very good. Um, some of you will do that, and then you'll. That's he's still very young. He's only been at it now how long? Twenty eight years or so? Thirty years? <laughs> Still very young in teaching. Manuscripts are excellent for posterity's sake, for when you're going to study this text again. You have your notes, you have your manuscript. But let me tell you what you want to try to refrain from. And that is, if possible, you don't want to have your manuscript in the pulpit with you or at your lectern when you're teaching. Why? What's the temptation? Yeah, it's reading. It becomes reading. Now, if you're skilled at it, you're good at it, and you've highlighted it in certain ways, and you've pulled it up and bold certain phrases, maybe you can get away with it, okay? Maybe you're one of the few that can. I'll tell you one of the guys that, uh, that reads a full manuscript, and you would never, you never know it. You never know it. Um, and that's Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Community Church. He reads every sermon he preaches, but you would never know he's reading. He's just very good at it. I would never try to do it. I have tried. It doesn't work, okay? All right, um, so you prepare a manuscript. This is a word-for-word, word, and it, early in your, stu in your life as a preacher or a teacher, it helps you to write it out to know what you're saying, when you're saying it, how you're saying it, and it begins to get concreted into your mind before you get up there. Now, Aaron takes his manuscript up here, all right? But I promise you, if I took his manuscript, he wouldn't like it, but if I took his manuscript from him right as he started to teach, he could teach the whole lesson. It's in his brain. Talk to him a week after he teaches, he can still tell you about his, his lesson. He's got it. He, he, he knows it, okay? And, and that's the way you want to know what you're going to teach. You want to know it in your brain. It, won't, it needs to be concreted on Sunday when you stand in Sunday school class or, or preach from the pulpit. It needs to be there. Um, the student then prepares your outline for preaching. So once you've done your uh, exegetical outline, then you've done your initial preaching outline, then you've written a manuscript, now you want to write your final outline, what you're going to actually take into the pulpit. On, um, on Sunday. And for me, most of the time, mine looks like this. Very detailed introduction. This is my sermon. This is my conclusion. My sermon is three points as it's up there that are written down. Sometimes it's as little as a sticky note. Sometimes it's on pages like this. Sometimes in a notebook. But it's, that's how simple it is. Okay, And I'll, also all I have is, is what I need in there. That's what you want to base it on. What do I need? And then you want to pray. You want to again close out your study in prayer. Prayer focuses you. You want to spend time praying for yourself. Praying, confessing sin. Applying the sermon to your own heart and your own mind. Asking God to give you the power and the effectiveness through His Spirit to proclaim His Word with power. You want to pray for the congregation. Pray 
specifically for, for those in your congregation, needs that you know that they have, families you know are struggling in the area you're going to address. You want to pray for them. And then finally, you stand and deliver. Now, when you deliver the sermon, the biggest, the biggest thing to remember out of this point is you're preaching for Jesus Christ. More than preaching for a sermon, uh, uh, an audience, you have an audience in the Lord. And if you preach effectively, you will have pleased Him. And if not, then nothing else matters. If you haven't preached effectively and truthfully and everybody loves you, it doesn't matter. All that really matters is reaching the ear of Christ with the sermon. The boldness and power that you preach with comes from the Spirit. And then be authentic in the pulpit. Be transparent as is needed. Don't be overly uh, personal. But you do want to be transparent. You'll connect when you're teaching, when you're transparent. I never, uh, never forget the fact that when Charles Spurgeon had been preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle for many years, he was seen muttering on the way to the pulpit. And this is something that he did every Sunday. He still was muttering to himself, muttering and muttering. And finally someone asked him, what, what are you doing when you, when you go up there? We just see your lips are moving. You're, you're something, he said... When I go to the pulpit, I beg the Holy Spirit not to abandon me. For if He abandons me in this moment, all that I've done is a waste. Everything I've done is a waste. It's worthless. All the study, all the preparation, all the getting, getting yourself ready to preach. If the Spirit doesn't go with you, it's powerless. It may be technically correct. It may be historically accurate. It may be effective and outlined. It may be well illustrated with a good introduction and conclusion. And if the Spirit of God does not take that and implant it in the hearts of people, you might as well be teaching a history class at the community college. The difference between preaching and teaching a class in the secular world or teaching a Sunday school class and teaching in the secular world, the one difference is you're dealing with the eternal Word of God that is applied by His Holy Spirit. And if not, all is lost. All is lost. Al Mohler was uh, telling us his personal testimony one day, and uh, if you've ever heard Mohler preach, he's one of the most intellectual men you'll, you'll ever hear. Very bright, very astute. I mean, he uses words that, you go to these conferences, he uses words, I'm just like... Where do you even find that, you know? You know how he was saved? He was a young man in South Florida. And he said, the guy that was preaching, he was our preacher. He said, we call them heave and blow preachers. He had never been to seminary. He, never, he did not know the original languages. He was preaching the best he could preach. And the Spirit of God moved through his preaching. And he saved many people. One of them was Al Mohler. And the reason they called him heave and blow was because 
you get to preaching and that, that, that breath gets going and spit's flying. He said, I would, I would fail by this guy in a preaching class. He would never get out of my homiletics class. But the Spirit of God anointed his words and, and people were saved. People's lives were changed. If the Spirit leaves you, if he does not attend to your preaching, it will never be effective, eternally effective. Let's pray. Father, we realize that the task of preaching is...